Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, I had no idea this was going to be such a big deal. <laughs> this, it's a real honor, let me tell you, to be standing up here. You know, in uh, Hindu and Buddhist societies, uh, the butchers and the blacksmiths are untouchables. And my blacksmith shop is in an old abattoir, so I'm a double untouchable, so <laughs> pretty nice to be up here. Um, I started out as a mountain climber before I could walk because uh, I was born in a little town of Lisbon, Maine, French-Canadian parents. And uh, before I could walk, there was a priest uh, boarding upstairs who would uh, get me to climb up the stairs and on the top he'd give me a spoonful of honey. <laughs> so I, I knew at a very early age that uh, there's a lot of reward in high places. <laughs> uh, we, we had kind of a grapes of wrath move in 1946, moved, moved to California. Six of us got into one car, we'd sold everything that we had, auctioned everything off, and then uh, drove to California and started a new life. I was seven years old. Uh, I was put in public school before I had been going to a parochial French-speaking school. And um, I couldn't speak English, and within a few days I ran away from school. <laughs> so, I mean, a perceptive teacher could have told right away that I was going to be an entrepreneur. Because, you know, my favorite quote about entrepreneurs is if you want to understand an entrepreneur, study the juvenile delinquent. <laughs> because they're, they, they're basically saying, oh, this sucks. <laughs> I'm going to do it my own way. So when I was young, I, uh, I, I invented my own sports, pretty much. I mean, I, I could play baseball as well as the other kid and but when it came time to a, for a real game and people watching, I would just clutch up and fumble the ball and everything. And so I basically spent a lot of my childhood down in uh, the L.A. River from Burbank. And uh, I was down there, you know, gigging frogs and catching crawdads and eating them and that kind of stuff. And, uh, in fact, we used to swim... In this, this is in grammar school. We used to go down and swim in the outfall from Walt Disney Studios. And it was the outfall from the film developing labs. <laughs> so <laughs> if I ever get cancer, it'll probably be from that, I guess. Um, so when I was about 12, I got in with a bunch of uh, adults who taught me falconry. And one of them was Tom Cade who uh, went to school here at UCLA and started the Paragon Fund. And uh, so uh, the falconry taught me a lot of things. It, you know, the first, first, after you trap a wild bird, the first thing you do is you put him on your fist with these jessies and he flies off and you put him back on and he flies off and put him back on. You keep doing that until finally he sits there. And you stay up all night until he finally falls asleep on your hand. 
that's a real quick way to build trust in the bird. And, you know, that's my kind of first lesson in Zen, because a Zen master would say, all right, just who's getting trained here anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so from climbing to Falcon's Iries, uh, I learned to climb mountains. And uh, in those days, there were very few mountain climbers around. And all the gear was made in, uh, in Europe. And the, the pitons that you drive into the cracks to protect yourself and stuff were made out of soft iron, and they cost 15 cents a piece. And the Europeans' attitude towards climbing mountains was you conquer the mountains, you know, the conquest of Mount Everest, this kind of stuff. And um, so they left the pitons in place. You do a first ascent. You'd leave all your gear in place to make it easier for the next person. It's kind of like manifest destiny, you know. You, you make the mountains democratic so that the weakest possible person can get up it. <laughs> well, we, we read a lot of the philosophy of the transcendentalists, you know, the Emerson and, and uh, Thoreau and, and John Muir especially, and so, who believe that you climb the mountains but you don't leave any trace behind. So we wanted to make, I, I wanted to, I mean, I was 18 years old or something. I wanted to make some pitons that were made out of harder steel that you could put in and take out and leave no trace of having been there. So that's what I did. I borrowed um, some money from my parents, and I bought an anvil and a forge and a book on blacksmithing, and I became a blacksmith. And I sold my pitons for a dollar and a half each, ten times what they were going for, but it was pretty obvious after a while that you, if you wanted to do the hard climbs we were doing in Yosemite, you know, these 10-day climbs on El Capitan and stuff, you had to have these pitons because you, you had to carry like 30 of them and use them 300 times in the course of 10 days. So I was making a product that people had to have. And I never intended to be a businessman. You know, this is in the 60s. That's when... You know, businessmen were greaseballs. <laughs> so I, I just happened to be a craftsman that, uh, you know, every, every time I looked at a piece of equipment, I had an idea on how to make it better. I'm kind of an innovator. I'm not an inventor. It, it's like the difference between invention and innovation is uh, invention is, one, is zero to one. Innovation is one to 1,000. And so over the course of years, we basically redesigned every single piece of climbing equipment, made it better. So it got to be pretty successful. I had 80% of the climbing business um, from this little black blacksmith shop. And, uh, and we used them to climb these uh, we were on the cutting edge of, of climbing in those days. The walls that we were doing in Yosemite were harder than anything else in the world. And another Zen lesson that I learned is that uh, um, you climb a big wall like El Capitan, you get to the top, there's nothing there. <laughs> 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 I 
There's no photographers. There's no uh, dancing girls. There's... <laughs> so what's important about climbing is it's a purely idealistic thing that has no worth to society whatsoever. <laughs> and what's important is how, how you climb. And uh, so that's a lesson I learned in business as well, that uh, you don't focus on making a profit. You focus on all the process of making a profit, and the profits will just happen. And it's the same thing with climbing. If you focus too much on getting to the summit, you'll blow it. You'll compromise on the way up. And, and uh... So anyway, I've used that in business a lot. Um, after a while, there got to be so many climbers putting in and taking out these pitons that they started, I started noticing that it's destroying the cracks. Where there used to be a little thin crack, now there's a big hole. And I realized, oh my God, we caused this. So even though making pitons and stuff like that was a big part of our business, we decided to phase that out. And Thankfully, we came up with some ideas for these little aluminum chocks that you just place with your fingers and you take out with your fingers and it doesn't damage the rock. And uh, So we switched over completely to that. Uh, you know, destroying the cracks was just an unintended consequence of a technology that we were responsible for. Well, it was hard at first to convince Climbers who were used to pounding these pitons in with a big 20-ounce hammer to trust a little piece of aluminum that they put in with their fingers. So we had to lead by example, and so uh, myself and another guy went and climbed a route on El Capitan without hammers and without pitons, just to show that uh, if you could do that, you could climb anywhere safely. So... Um, problem is, we were such idealistic in business that we weren't making any money. We, uh, we would come out with a product and spend a lot of money on tools and dies, and, and then that's supposed to be amortized over three years or something, and of course, within three months, we had an idea for how to improve it even more, because you know we were the ones making stuff for ourselves. And uh, on a climbing trip to Scotland one winter, I, I was in Edinburgh, and I was going by a store, and I saw these rugby shirts hanging up. And, you know, nobody in America knew rugby, what rugby was in those days. This is 1967 or something. And so I bought one of these shirts. I thought it would make a really great climbing shirt. It had a collar so that the gear slings wouldn't cut in your neck. It had rubber buttons, and it was sewn really tough. I thought, wow, this would make a great climbing shirt. So I bought one for myself and was wearing it, climbing, and everybody was coming up and saying, wow, where'd you get that? That's pretty cool. It was real colorful. You know, it was a blue with red and yellow stripes. And, and it, in those days, men didn't wear colorful clothes. Now, this is, this is before, you know, the whole sportswear thing. Uh, you know, active sportswear was gray sweatshirts and sweatpants. That was it. And all of a sudden, you know, here comes this rugby shirt. And 
Um, so anyway, the lights came on in my head, and so I imported a few, and they sold like crazy. And so that's what got us in the clothing business. And from there, I designed a pair of uh, shorts for climbing, and I, I made the patterns myself, and I had this Korean woman who was the wife of a Korean friend of mine who worked in the machine shop, and she, we made them out of number 10 canvas duck, which is what you uh, use for lawn chairs. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she had to sew these things up on a walking foot machine, the kind of sewing machine they use for sewing through heavy leather. And after she sewed them, she put them on the, on the table and they stood straight up. And, <laughs> and she was laughing and and we, we still make that short. It's called a stand-up short. <laughs> um, we've softened the cloth a lot, though. Um, anyway, the climbing business kind of took off because uh, we were making something unique. We, we, applied, um, we applied all the, the laws of, of uh, or the methods of industrial design to making clothing, which nobody had ever done. You know, a clothing designer takes some uh, cloth and wraps it around a mannequin and pins it here and there and creates something out of virtually nothing. And, and uh, we approached each clothing problem as if it was a technical problem. So in other words, okay, we're going to work on a pair of socks. What do these socks have to do? And approached it that way. And then often the, the fabric is the last thing we choose. So we were making really durable, tough stuff. And in fact, um, we made a pack one time and Backpacker Magazine reviewed it and they lamb blasted it and said, you know, what do a bunch of blacksmiths know about sewing anyway? That was their exact words. Well, we didn't know much about sewing but we just knew about durability and absolute um, security because, you know, when you go from making mountain climbing equipment, that if it fails, it would kill you because you're your own customer, to making clothing. And we just, we wanted to make the best clothing we possibly could. Well, one thing led to another, and uh, I saw uh, my friend who started Esprit, uh, Doug Tompkins, he was wearing a, a Fila sweater, and it was brushed wool, and it was kind of fuzzy, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. That's, if that could be made out of a synthetic, that would be a great thing for climbing um, because it wouldn't absorb water and stuff. And so um, my wife went down to downtown L.A. and was looking for artificial fake fur, and... Uh, and she found some. She found uh, some fake fur that they line the inside of coats with. And uh, in fact, <laughs> in those days, uh, they used it for toilet seat covers. <laughs> and very, <laughs> very, you know, in Kansas. <clears throat> so we made a fleece jacket a pile jacket, and in fact, it worked great. People could fall into a river in the winter, 
take it off, shake it out, all the water would come off and put it back on and it would save their lives. So that, the first ones were pretty ugly. <laughs> but eventually we came up with a product called Cinchilla, which is now the polar fleece. And all of a sudden that became a uh, fashion item around America. And we were selling it to all kinds of people, people who really didn't need it, but you know, they wanted to wear that thing in their Jeep Cherokee that they drove from their New York apartment to their Connecticut home. <laughs> and any day now, they're going to lose 40 pounds and go climb Mount Rainier. <laughs> so we were experiencing 50% growth every year. And we were opening retail stores, getting more dealers. We were advertising. Um, the business was just exploding. But as you know, some of you, that you can't keep going on that kind of growth without getting uh, cash flow problems. You can't do it on just retained earnings. That's why a lot of young entrepreneurial companies go public, because they just can't finance the growth. And one year, we had planned for 50% growth. And uh, there was a recession. And we had bought all the inventory for 50% growth. We had hired people, lots of new people, and we only grew 20%. Well, it was a total disaster. We got into really heavy financial problems. Our bank was in trouble itself. It wouldn't lend us any money. And in fact, my accountant introduced me to the mafia who ironically wanted to charge me 28% interest, which, which is what you pay on your, ink, your credit card these days. Uh, so we almost lost a business. And I realized that I was making all the same mistakes American business make by going for the growth. So I took 10 of my most important people, and we went down to Patagonia, the real Patagonia, South America. We walked around and then would sit down in a circle and would say, okay, what in the world are we trying to do here anyway? Not one of us had any degree in business. Not one had intended to be a businessman. We were all people with degrees in anthropology and biology and I had a degree in auto mechanics from John Burroughs High School. <laughs> so we had to sit down and and talk about why we got into this place and this situation and what we're going to do about it. So we sat down and said, okay, what are our values? And number one was quality, because we're coming from making the best quality climbing equipment in the world, and we wanted to make the best quality clothing. And my... Uh, head designer was there, and she said, oh, we can't do that. I said, well, why not? Well, the best shirt is an Italian hand-woven cloth. The buttons are hand-sewn on. It's, you know, they cost $350. This is quite a while ago. We can't make a shirt like that because nobody would buy it. We'd put ourselves out of business. So I said, well, what happens if you put it in the washer and dryer? Oh, you can't do that. It'll shrink. 
I said, well, that's not good quality. <laughs> so we had, to, uh, we had to identify what is quality for us. There were no books on what quality is in clothing. So, you know, we had to write a philosophy of quality. And, you know, number one, it had to be functional and we had to have multifunctional clothes because we didn't want to own a lot of clothes. We wanted to have a ski jacket that didn't say ski all over it, but it, you can ski perfectly in it and then wear it on top of your suit coat in a rainstorm in Paris in the middle of the winter. So it had to be multifunctional, had to be durable. And, uh, you know, my, my son makes surfboards, and when he started out making surfboards, I, I said, hey, you know, his name is Fletcher. I said, Fletcher, what, how are you going to make him any different? Well, I don't know. Well, <laughs> how about making the best surfboard in the world? Oh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not a Al Merrick or Rusty or... Well, I said, if you take one of their surfboards and you go to Indonesia, what are the chances of breaking it? Oh, it'll break. <laughs> I said, that's not good quality. <laughs> so I forced him to think about that, and now he makes the most durable, toughest, some of the best surfboards in the world. All these big wave surfers at Mavericks and YMA and stuff are riding his boards now. And, uh, you know... Another criteria for quality was don't chase fashion. We didn't want to make disposable clothes. And we wanted to cause the least harm in making those clothes. So our mission statement in those days was make the best quality, period, and cause no unnecessary harm. So... Uh, These, uh, from these values, we started writing out a, a philosophy of, of, uh, of business. And uh, I went around and I taught these philosophies to every single person in the company. And... Uh, The value, the, actually, the values we came up with. I forgot about that. that one, one other value besides making the best quality product is we wanted to have flex time. So we wanted to be able to take off on, you know, three month expedition somewhere, not lose our job. And uh, you know, I wrote a book on our business philosophy. It's called "Let My People Go Surfing." <laughs> Because we have a company policy that we don't care when you work, as long as the work is done. So if you're a serious surfer or powder skier or whatever, you don't go surfing. You don't go like, hey, let's go surfing next Thursday at 2 o'clock. <laughs> that's, that's what losers say. <laughs> you go surfing when there's surf. You go powder skiing when there's powder. And so... We wanted to have a job where we would be allowed to do that. And then we wanted to work with friends. We didn't want to work with MBAs and... (laughs) 
uh, you know, and we wanted to break the rules of business. I mean, there's, there's a lot of fun in breaking the rules. And uh, we didn't want to do it the way everybody did. Uh, and we wanted to blur the distinction between work and play and family. So we wanted to have our kids with us at work. We didn't want to just leave them at home. I, I got 70-something percent kids. And so, you know, we were bringing our kids in and putting them on our desk in a cardboard box. <laughs> that was just part of the deal. I had a lot of employees that are barefooted at work all the time. Who cares? All I care is that the work is done. And so to do that, you have to hire self-motivated, very intelligent people who know their job, and then you leave them alone. And uh, I had a psychologist come and visit us one time, and he did a study. He studied every single person working for us to see if they're in the right job, see if a right brain person is in a right brain job or not, and that kind of stuff. And he came up to me afterwards, and he, he said, you know, i got to tell you, um, you've got the most independent people I've ever seen working here. They're so independent that they're unemployable anywhere else. <laughs> uh, so th that's what we do. I mean, right now at Patagonia, for every job opening, we have an average of 900 applicants. So we can pick and choose from the very, very best people. And the last criteria is, do we want to go to dinner with these people? So it's one big family, which is good and it's bad, because it's hard to fire anybody. Um, so we wrote a philosophy of business uh, covering every part of the business. You know, what's our philosophy of architecture? Well, it's no different than making clothing, really. You know, the most responsible thing you can do in buying clothing is uh, buy used clothing. The most responsible thing you can do in, in a, a building is to restore old buildings. And that's what we do with our retail stores. We try to get old buildings and restore them. And so anyway, it's, it's the same philosophy. It doesn't matter what product you're making. The, our criteria for quality are pretty much universal. The, the most difficult thing to come up with was an environmental quality. What's our environmental uh, philosophy? Because, again, there were no books to tell us what to do. There was no books on how to make more sustainable clothing. And um, we were wrestling with this. And then one day, we opened a store in Boston. And it was an old building that we restored. And it was springtime, and uh, we brought in all the sportswear and filled up the store and opened it. And within three days, my employees were saying they're getting headaches. And so we closed the store, brought in an environmental engineer, and he said, oh, your ventilation system isn't working. It's, re it's recirculating the same air. So... Um, most companies would just stop right there, fix the ventilation system. But I said, well, why are they getting headaches? 
Well, it's got all this formaldehyde and all this clothes that you have in here, and you got a closed room. Well, what's the formaldehyde doing here? Well, he said there's formaldehyde on cotton. What? You know, when I started looking it up, I realized that on your average, on on your 100% cotton clothing, on average, it's only 73% cotton. The rest are chemicals put on afterwards to make it stay pressed and uh, and keep it from shrinking and wrinkling. and, And they use formaldehyde, which, you know, in biology class, that's what got a lizard in a jar and that's formaldehyde and they use formaldehyde in making plywood glues and they use it all over society and it's absolutely a toxic chemical it's one of the you know 80,000 chemicals in America of which only 200 have been tested to see whether they're toxic or not and formaldehyde is one that they have identified as being cancerogenic <clears throat> well, I just said, I don't want to be in business if I have to make clothing with formaldehyde. Get rid of the formaldehyde. Which brought up, the, you know, the fact that we didn't know how to make clothes. We were like everybody else. We'd just say, hey, we need some shirting fabric. Call a fabric supplier. He comes. He's got books and books on fabrics and prints. And you say, oh, I like that. Give me 10,000 yards of this. Not knowing how it's how it's treated, where it comes from, not knowing anything, we just and then we'd send it off to be sewn. We were garmentos, <laughs> and and then we realized, hey, we're not supposed to be causing any harm. We better find out what we're doing. And so we came up with a five-step environmental philosophy. And number one was to lead and examine life. Start asking a lot of questions to find out what we are doing. Because, you know, I think most of the damage caused to the planet is caused unintentionally, just through ignorance. You know, for instance, for instance, that little LED light on all your electronics, you think, how many of you even thought about how much juice that pulls? It's just there. It just says I'm turned on. Well, it takes 19 power plants in California to power those little LED lights that are worthless. So, you know, we asked ourselves a question. Toyota has a management uh, kind of method where they have a problem. They ask the five questions, which is, Ask enough questions that you finally get to the true causes of the problem, and you don't stop at the symptoms. I mean, you know, you look at the government is working endlessly on symptoms. They don't want to deal with the problems. Um, You know, one out of seven women in this room are going to get breast cancer. It was one in eight when I wrote my book uh, six years ago. Now it's one in seven. Before World War II, it was one in 40. So it's not genetics. It's got to be some environmental cause. Yet the Cancer Society is only spending 3% of their monies to find the environmental causes of breast cancer. All the rest is to try to find cures. Why is that? 
There's money to be made on cures. There's no money to be made on eliminating the causes. And you know, it, it could be any one of these 80,000 chemicals, or it could be a cocktail of a mixture of those chemicals. It's endless. There's 5,000 toxic chemicals in your average house, of which formaldehyde is one of them. So we asked our question, okay, well, what should we be making clothing out of? If we don't want to use industrially grown cotton, uh, or you know, chemically altered cotton, so in doing our studies, we found out that the worst possible fiber to be making clothing is 100% industrially grown pure cotton. And that's because oh, something like 25% of the world's pesticide use is used on cotton fields. And it only occupies 3% of the world's farmland. So it uses an inordinate amount of chemicals to defoliate the plant so the mechanical pickers can pick it. They use a, a chemical similar to Agent Orange that we destroyed Vietnam with to defoliate the plant. The cancer rate in Central Valley in California is 10 times normal. There's crop dusters flying over your head all the time. Um, we went and looked at cotton fields, and it's a killing zone. There's nothing alive. There's no birds, there's no bugs, there's no weeds. And there's no runoff from the Central Valley in California. It just runs. So all that water runs off the cotton fields and ends up in these sumps over in the western side of the valley. Kesterson, you've probably heard of that. And you get all this selenium and, 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 uh, and of course, the, the fields get solenated after a while. And there's, there's these guys sitting on lawn chairs at these ponds with shotguns and cannons to scare away the waterfowl because if they land on those, those ponds and ingest some of that water, they end up with chicks with uh, two beaks and three legs. And I'm not exaggerating. It's, I just said, okay, I don't want to be in the cotton business if that's what I have to use. It's the same thing, you know, that we did with pitons. I just... I never wanted to be a businessman in the first place, so no big deal. I've got nothing to lose. Well, thankfully, there was organically grown cotton, but there wasn't hardly any being grown anymore. A few companies had tried it, and like Esprit tried it, and they said, hey, let's try a little line of, uh, you know, kind of hippie um, <laughs> organic cotton clothes, and if it works, we'll We'll do more, and if it doesn't work, we can always go back. Well, it didn't work, of course, because they weren't serious. I gave the company 18 months to get out of the industrial cotton business. Otherwise, that's it. And it was 25% of our business. So that got everybody's attention. But it wasn't easy because the cotton farmers uh, couldn't get loans from the bank. Um, we had to co-sign their loans so that they go grow the cotton organically. And then we had to go to the, the gins, which separate the seeds. And it's dripping with cottonseed oil, which is really, that's where all the toxins are. You know, if you're eating chips with cottonseed oil, forget it. You're poisoning yourself. And it's not regulated by the EPA. And they're feeding it to cattle. The cottonseed are being fed to cattle, and you eat the beef, you're poisoning yourself.
And uh, and then, you know, we went to the spinners, and we had to talk to these gins to clean their machine before they ran our stuff. And then you go to the gin, who, uh, no, not the gin, but the spinners who spin the yarn, and they don't want to deal with our cotton because it comes in with seeds and stems and leaves, and it's sticky, and it's kind of like bad dope, you know? <laughs> I figured some of you could relate to that. <laughs> so, you know, it's sticky because of all the aphids. And, uh, but we found one spinner in Thailand who, who uh, believed in what we were trying to do, and he said, I'll try to figure it out. And he figured out a method where he freezes the cotton so that it goes through the spinning machines uh, smoothly. And so we had to find partners to work with, and it wasn't easy, but in 18 months, we completely got out of the using industrially grown cotton and went to organic. And we haven't used a single bit of industrially grown cotton since. Now, <laughs> that was asking one question. So then, well, what are we gonna dye with? Are, are dyes toxic? You know, there's different dyes, different chemicals for polyester, for nylon, for dyeing cotton. We didn't know. Oh, we just bought dyed cloth. So then we look into it and we find out, yeah, dyes are toxic, but there's some companies in, in uh, Europe that make non-toxic cotton dyes. But some colors are still toxic. And here's the colors. And so, okay, so now we know. Well, where is the dyeing going to be done? Is it a dyeing factory that has an outfall going into a river that's polluting a river? We went to Portugal. We were, that's where we get a lot of uh, flannel shirts, and, flan and Port Portugal's famous for flannel. Well, sure enough, along the, the river, the Duaro River in, in, uh, in Portugal, uh, there's a dye house. And you pull in water, they dye their stuff, boom. Outfall was right into the river. There's another dye house down below and another one. It's a whole series of dye houses. The last one down near the mouth of the river can't use the river water because it's black. It's jet black. So they had, had to put in all this West German expensive machinery to clean the water. And then <clears throat> they dye their goods. And then they run it through the machine again so that their outfall is clean. So there we go. Um, how about water? What, how much is, you know, does water, how much water, what's our carbon footprint in making clothing? Does water have anything to do with it? Use of water? Yeah, it turns out, you know, to make one of our, one of our t-shirts, uh, organically grown t-shirts uses, um, 200 gallons of water, and a non-organic t-shirt uses 1,200 gallons of water. Is water just water? No, it makes a big difference whether you're using irrigated water, where it comes out of a dam, that they dammed a river and, and destroyed people's lives and, and uh, destroyed runs of salmon and stuff like that. There's a big difference whether you use that water or you use rainwater. So it makes a big difference 
where your cotton is grown. Um, anyway, uh, leading examine life like this in business is, it can be a real pain in the ass, I can tell you. <laughs> <clears throat> but when you educate yourself, you know you're left with choices. Uneducated people have no choices. You know, the lumberjack that is fighting to death to keep cutting trees is because he's scared to death. It's all he knows to do. And so once you've educated yourself and you realize what you're doing wrong, stop doing it. It's, uh, and that's, you know, clean up your own act. That was the second part of our, of our thing. And it's, uh, I, I, I think uh, which kind of brings up uh, well I'll, I'll go on I'll go on from that and that's that's what we're trying to do at Patagonia is um, ask all the all these questions and then act on it and then also try to influence other companies in doing the same thing so we share that information, because, uh, you know, we share information about uh, organic cotton with Nike and the Gap and, and, uh, and a lot of our processes. In fact, we, we helped start an organization called the Organic Exchange, which is now called the Textile Exchange, which is a consortium of a lot of different companies that we share information together as to what we're doing, um, because there's no books on this. So after, after you go and, and, and you have an, a strong environmental assessment and you, you, you try to clean up your act as much as you can, you're still a net polluter. There's no such thing as sustainability. Not in any human endeavor. We cause more damage than the final product. And we recognize that. So we, we decide hey, we got to do some penance for using up non-renewable resources and making consumer goods. So we, at first we started taking 10% of our profits before taxes and giving that away to environmental causes. And um, pretty soon we started seeing other companies saying, hey, we're doing the same thing. We're taking, you know, 5% of our profits. And, but what was happening in a lot of cases is that the principals were giving themselves big bonus at the end of the year and there were no profits. 5% of nothing is nothing. It was a marketing deal. So we said, okay, let's throw the gauntlet down. Let's do a 1% of sales. Whether you're profitable or not, it's 1% of your total sales at the end of the year. Because it's not charity. Charity is when, you know, you've had a good year and you dig in your pocket and you give some away. This is a cost of doing business. So even if we're not profitable, we give 1% of our sales. And, uh, and what do we do with that? Well, we use it to support civil democracy because I think the strongest force in America, I think, is civil democracy. 
It's far stronger than any government. It's uh, pick up the newspaper any day. You'll see that any gains we're making as a society is made to civil democracy. You know the. If you want to change government, you change corporations. You want to change corporations, you got to change consumers. That's kind of the little Zen thing. That's us. We're the consumers, and uh, and we're the ones that are doing the civil democracy. There's thirty thousand environmental organizations in America. Each one is doing good work. There's a million NGOs. America has a whole history of philanthropy, where it's, which doesn't exist in Europe or in Latin America. Um, if you look at the history of this co country, I mean, you know, freeing, freeing the slaves, well, it started with northern philanthropists who encouraged slaves to leave the South through the Underground Railroad, and, and you know, the South was freaking out, and. You know, civil rights legislation, you think it was Johnson that did that? No, it was this tired housewife, Rosa Parks, who refused to get off a bus. She was tired of a segregated bus. It was the black kids who were standing up to federal marshals. Women's suffrage. Vietnam, how did we get out of Vietnam? Well, everybody rose up and said, we're out of there. So it's a powerful force, and that's what we use our 1% for, to support those people that are on the front lines, those housewives that are opposing a toxic dump in their neighborhood and stuff. And um, So at Patagonia, we give to about 450 different uh, environmental organizations every year. And that's about $4 million a year. And over the... Over the years, we've, we've given away about $40 million. And, um, you know, by supporting civil democracy, we, we can all still have a say. I mean, how, how many of you think the government's going to solve all our problems? <laughs> At best, they're going to cut the baby in half and, and end up with a compromise that doesn't solve anything. And... Uh, there's a lot of good work being done on local level, and that's what we use our money to support. And, you know, I'm a real pessimist about the fate of the planet, and that's basically why I'm, I continue to be in business. I have no desire to make more money for myself. My wife and I give 50% of our salaries away every year anyway. I drive old beater cars. I, I have a very simple life. But I'm a real pessimist about the plant, uh, future of the planet and the natural world. And I have every reason to be. There's no good news out there. And we're not going to save the world. Patagonia is not going to save the world by itself. And so I'm trying to use the company to influence other companies and to prove that green business is good business. So the last part of our mission statement, which we adopted quite a bit later, was to use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. So um, we've been advising a lot of other companies. Uh, like I said, we started this organic exchange. 
the organic cotton business, which is practically zero when we started, is now a $4 billion um, business. Uh, certainly a lot healthier for the people working in the fields. And, um, and uh, right now, we're working on a sustainability index to where, you know, you have organic standards for foods. Well, why isn't there a standard for clothing? Why can't you walk into a department store and zap the barcode with your little electronic whatever you have, and it'll tell you how the clothing was made, whether it's sustainable, and if it's bamboo, well, what does it mean, bamboo clothing? Well, bamboo is just rayon, and rayon's a toxic fiber. And yet everybody's saying, oh, this is sustainable clothing. There's so much misinformation out there. Well, why can't you get the facts? Why can't each pair of jeans have that on their barcode? Well, guess what? In a couple of years, you'll have that. And it'll be a revolution. And uh, we're working with companies like Walmart. You know, I always thought the revolution was going to start from the bottom, but um, Walmart is probably the company that's doing more than practically anybody to green themselves. And they're realizing that if they don't, they'll be out of business because the lifespan of retailers is about one generation. I mean, look at Sears Roebuck and Montgomery Wards. They're gone because they haven't changed. And so Walmart understands that the next the next group of consumers, uh, the young kids, 13, 15, they're a lot different than, than, you, than we are. They're, they don't watch television. They, they don't listen to advertising. They communicate among themselves. They've had environmental education. And they know all the problems of destroying the planet, not like their parents who believe that, you know, saving the planet is 19th on their priorities. These kids want to do something about it, and they're the future consumers. Walmart understands that, and so they're, and we're, we're advising them. We're, uh, you know, the, the Walton family, when they gave a directive to green Walmart, all these executives had no idea what to do. They sent a bunch of them out to visit us to see what we're doing. And since then, we've been working with them and trying to clean up, I mean, you know, I'm talking about the 11th largest economy in the world. There's only 10 countries larger than Walmart. So that's, that's good news, that what we're working on. Um, and so how are we doing in this recession? Well, I was just right in the middle of the recession a couple of years ago. I was talking to the five top biggest companies in 1% for the planet, ourselves and New Belgian Brewing and Cliff Bar and a couple others. And, and we were all talking and we we're all saying, you know, business has never been better. And everybody, you know, well, why is that? Must be something that we're doing right. And in fact, <clears throat> one of the things I did uh, when we got in that financial trouble is I decided to put the business on a 100-year plan. 
make every decision as if we're going to be here 100 years from now. And um, that, you know, I, I figured, well, we're asking the, the farmer to leave the farm in better shape than when he received it from his parents. We're asking the forester to leave the forest in good shape after he's taken out some wood. But somehow, you know, government is exempt from that. Business is exempt from that. You can just grow the business as fast as you can and then, you know, uh, get to the point of instability and unsustainability and then you bankrupt it and, and uh, you know, fire all these people and lay them off. And, well, I think business should have that same responsibility as a farmer. So... You know, we put ourselves on a slow growth um, and with a goal to being out of debt. Well, we are. We're debt-free. We're, uh, we, we are on a, a natural growth track, which means when the customer gets his catalog and has ordered 10 products and only gets three because we're sold out, it means we're not making enough. We're not advertising. We only spend one half of 1% on advertising. We don't advertise on inner city buses to get the uh, gang kids to wear our black down jackets instead of North Face. <laughs> so we're not going into third world countries and trying to get them to consume. It's just a natural growth. And this year, we have to grow 25%. Um, and it looks like it's going to continue. It's, things are exploding. So uh, the last thing is uh, I'm going to talk about is one, one thing that's pretty exciting, what we're going to do. We're going to have a contract with our customers. <clears throat> where we're going to, when you go into a Patagonia store, you'll probably be confronted with a sales clerk that, it's going to say, do you really need to buy this or not? <laughs> do you really need another jacket? Or maybe you could use a, a simpler one? Or No, really, we're going to ask our customers to think twice before they consume. Because, <clears throat> you know, the problem with the world is... is The problem is there's too many people consuming too much, consuming and discarding endlessly. The whole economy is based on consuming. We're not citizens anymore. We're consumers. And if you look in Webster's, the word consumer means one who, who uses up, who destroys. That's us. We're the problem. It's not the corporations. It's not those Mexicans that are having too many kids. It's not, we're the ones. We're using up the resources of seven planets. We're the ones that have to change. And so we're going to ask our customers to think twice before they need that jacket. And if they do realize that they need it and don't just want it, um, we'll happily sell it to them. And thank you for your business, and thanks for buying our jacket instead of a Columbia or whatever. <laughs> and... When it, if it breaks down, you know, we don't make zippers, so zippers are always breaking down. And if something breaks down, we'll fix it. And then when you're finally, we already do this stuff, but 
When you're finally sick of it, you bought a purple jacket and you're sick of purple now, or your kids have outgrown the kids' clothes, we'll find another owner for it. We're doing a, a partnership with eBay. Will you be able to put it on eBay and sell that jacket? And you can pocket the money, or you can give it to five different organizations that we'll recommend and that will change periodically. When the product is finally dead, I mean really dead, <laughs> give it back to us. Drop it off at one of our stores. Give it back to us, and if it's polyester, nylon six, we'll melt it down into the original polymer and make more fiber. If it's cotton, wool, hemp, we'll recycle it into more clothing. So in other words, we're gonna close the loop. And uh, we're gonna accept responsibility. <laughs> oh, thanks. We're gonna accept responsibility for our product from birth till birth. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of where we are right now. I've, I've given you lots of, in, lots of ammunition. And uh, I hope to get some, some questions from you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.